Okay, um, great to be here on home turf in this beautiful room. Um, thanks so much to Naomi and the foundation and to Robert and Jesse and everyone for uh, putting this together and inviting me. Um, and especially thanks to the Melbourne School of Design, as Andrew mentioned, for um, contributing as well. Um, my talk is titled How to Make the Next City, which is also the book that I'm working on. Um, and yeah, we're here to talk about livability, about livable cities. Oh, which I'm confused now. That's the one. Um, and so, yeah, I'm pr I, I mean, I'm proud of Melbourne and its, uh, its livable, uh, top of the list of livability, livable cities. Um, it's, it, on the website for the, uh, for the conference, it's, it's written in scare quotes, but I, I don't think I share that um, suspicion. Uh, the, the rest of the world is jealous of what we take for granted. Um, they're jealous of our amazing tram networks, of our green cities that's been redesignated an urban forest. Um, they're jealous of the fine grain of shops in the laneways or, or in um, Fitzroy, Collingwood, uh, the inner, inner suburbs. Um, we've got amazing universities. We've got uh, incredible design and architecture scene, which we see here today. Um, and, and companies taking on the world. Um, so if any of the rest of my talk sounds critical, it's because it comes from a place of love. Uh, <laughs> and it's true, though, that, that those benefits are not available to everyone. So um, I am designing my brother's house, which is in Kyneton, which is probably 90 minutes out of uh, Melbourne. And on the way back, we came through Sunbury. And I thought, far out, let's have a look. This is the, this is the real um, edge of Melbourne. This is, this is the, um, so Sunbury, for those of you who don't know, is about 40 kilometers um, from the center. Uh, it is an old country town. So it's, it's you know, established in the 1850s, I think. And um, it's recently been redesignated as part of Melbourne, effectively, by the urban growth boundary, having uh, now including Sunbury. So um, th this is, and this is the result. This is um, what's happening here. And, and normally, um, architects are quite sneery about suburbs and, and um, dismissive of, of, of this kind of lifestyle and of, of building in this way. But um, you know, it was really interesting to zoom in and to try and understand uh, you know, the appeal of living out here. And of course, there's so many um, benefits. Um, these, you, you, I mean, you own the land that you're on. That's a, that's a big difference from, the, from I live in an apartment. Um, in Sunbury, of course, uh, you've got all the infrastructure already there. It's an existing town, so you've got a great train station, you've got a hospital, you've got good schools. Um, the homes are affordable. These are half the price of the um, of the Melbourne average, even though they are going up. Um, and it's all been quite well planned. So Hume um, Council are uh, you know, doing this in a careful, managed way. Um, but your commute is 90 minutes. Um, if you're, and, and as we know, most of the new jobs in the city are, are happening within five kilometers of the center. So we have this urban structure now, which is dependent on cars, dependent on roads. And as Dan said earlier, um, those are long bets. They're things which get, uh, once we build those roads, we, we cement our culture and our um, way of living along those lines. Uh, so, look, you know, I've, I've got a Brompton under the stairs 
he's, they've got a dirt bike and somewhere to run it. I mean, you know, <laughs> what's not to love? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but as this, um, I mean, The Age have been hammering away at this lately, which has been really good, I think, their campaign throughout July to look at the way the city's developing. Um, and this quote really stuck out to me. So um, Nishtha, who is an accountant with Deloitte, or she was rather, um, her commute was 90 minutes um, and had to decide, is it, it, do I want to keep this job and never see my kids or do I have to quit? And uh, she resigned in order to support her family. So that's the sort of real effects of the, of the city that we're building, if you like. Um, and yeah, not to mention traffic, sprawl, um, public services, uh, and, and looking ahead, I mean, we're, to, we're, we're adding 300 people a day to Melbourne. So that's 100,000 a year, um, and that's projected for the next uh, 20, 30 years um, to, be, to become a city of 8 million people. So I, I, I feel a bit like, um, excuse me, it's, it's always nice coming back home to, and to have those fresh eyes uh, and, to, and to step back in a way and, and think, you know, a, a, you're, you're freed from the day-to-day um, -day struggles and the day-to-day and -day reactions in a way. Um, you can step back and, uh, and make an observation um, and maybe look at the city with clear eyes. And it seems to me that... Um, the way we're designing is very reactive, and it seems very um, logical as well. You know, uh, we've got loads of traffic, let's build more roads. Um, we've got loads of people coming in, let's build um, huge apartment buildings. But it's sort of reinforcing a behaviour or a culture which perhaps is not one that we would aspire to if we had that longer view. So um, that's really what I was going to speak to today. Uh, is to, yeah, how can, how can we sort of, what's the longer view and what are those trends? So first of all, um, to just click through some really quick stats which I've pulled together. Um, that's the uh, population graph, um, uh, where we are uh, and where it's headed. There, so there are many more of us. We are getting older. This is a sort of frightening um, bulge of uh, population and ageing. Um, projected over time. Older people cost a lot to look after. I, I was completely blown away by this chart, which is um, age-related government spending. So as soon as you hit 60, I mean, we talk about the you know, health crisis and ageing, but as soon as you hit 60, you are really expensive. <laughs> look at that. Health, pension, aged care, boom. And because of that, that's all the new jobs that we're creating. So um, down the very bottom there, you can see health and social assistance. Uh, we're, we're at that 7% job growth compared to any, much far and ahead any other um, industry. So we're, we're in this position where we're ageing and then we're employing people to manage ourselves, uh, which is a, a sort of strange way to go about it. Um, of course... Many more women are entering the workforce. This is uh, looking back since the late 70s, um, and, and that's terrific, of course. We, we need to celebrate this um, equality, but uh, the, the, the men aren't retreating or picking up the slack. So as it was described in Annabelle Crabbe's brilliant book, um, working women have got two jobs now. They're looking after the home and the kids, 
and they're um, working full time. Uh, and so something, something's got to give, I think. Uh, we're living further out. I mentioned the urban growth boundary being redesignated in 2012. Um, and yeah, as I mentioned, all the new jobs are in the centre of the city. We're building lots of apartments. Look at that spike. Um, and there are fewer people per home. So that's across the 20th century, really. We used to have an average of almost five people per home, and now it's um, closer to two. And I think 30% of homes are single-person homes. So, so many of us are living alone. House prices have doubled in the time I've been living overseas, which is sort of, you know, good reason not to come back. <laughs> And the internet is getting really fast. That's an um, exponential graph. It might seem slow here in Melbourne, and it really does. It's like, oh, you know, I'll turn the video off on my Skype call type thing. But um, that, you can't deny that graph and, and what that might um, allow us to be able to do. So what does it all add up to? Taken together, it... Um, it, it feels like we're becoming an increasingly diffuse society um, at the scale of the individual family unit um, and at the scale of the city. Many more of us need care and more of us need to be carers. We're building taller, but we're also continuing to spread out. Um, we're tending towards gender parity in careers, but we're struggling to balance that with our families. We want freedom and autonomy and a dirt bike. Uh, but that's propped up by vast infrastructures of, of um, social and physical. Basically, we want the suburbs, but the suburbs aren't going to look after us. They're a 20th century typology that no longer fits the 21st century life. And the internet's really fast. So how do we make the next suburb, I think, is the real challenge going forward the next uh, couple of decades. Um, how do we retrofit the suburbs to become socially, environmentally, economically supportive places in their own right, rather than merely places to sleep between commutes? Um, and the suburbs are perfect for this. That's the um, amazing advantage of the, of the structure that's already existing. It's perfect to be evolved, to be adapted, to be um, transformed from the bottom up in incremental ways. So I've put together a series of um, examples from all over the world which I think we can look to and learn from um, when we come to adapting our existing suburbs. Um, Spanish architect Andres Hake, he conducted an audit of the IKEA catalogue um, and discovered that 92% of the people in the images were young, 98% of them were blonde, um, and all of them had some sort of family life. So we've seen the statistics, it's quite a long way away from reality. Um, and, and his argument is that this inability to confront the reality of how we're living, of, of our new family structures, um, simply reinforces those um, old uh, stereotypes, and, and, and it doesn't feed its way into the way we're living. So um, what he did was um, discover various different forms of family. So you have um, two couples living together. You have a woman who's set up a hairdressing salon in her front room. Um, this guy's running a bit like Marissa's uh, green wall projects. He's got an organic um, uh, aquaculture farm in his bedroom. Um, and this other guy lives in a granny, sh uh, granny flat shed 
um, and looks after the garden uh, in exchange for free rent. So, you know, these are the sorts of, you know, specific examples of different ways of living and different um, lifestyles which can form the ingredients for, for new housing typologies, effectively. Uh, and, and he then, uh, for MoMA, he put this all together into a kind of um, co-living performative structure, invited all these people who he interviewed, um, and then built the, the framework out of things from IKEA. David and Grace, other architects, um, and their incredible um, offset house, which is looking really at the um, super, I mean, we saw in Marissa's statistics, Australia has the largest homes in the world. Um, how can we, again, adapt that framework, um, perhaps shrink the private space and create a um, semi-public space in between, um, knock down the fences in between the homes, a bit like what Dan presented this morning with the Baugruppen in Berlin, create um, these public zones between us. So that's a, a, a you know, great example of suburban retrofit. Um, and there's amazing precedents here in Melbourne, of course, too. So this is... Um, Molesworth Street and Kew by Graham Gunn, Merchant Builders. Um, and you can see on the plan here uh, the incredible um, shared terrain between those private houses. Deconstruct the home. Uh, the Moriyama House uh, by Nishizawa in uh, Tokyo. Again, um, instead of one apartment building, it's a different... Um, it's been divided into different blocks, which creates a certain amount of privacy, but also amazing intermediate spaces and public spaces, and there's no fence to that building too, so as a member of the public, you can just walk straight through it. And again, in Melbourne, this beautiful um, social housing project by Bent, which is out in Dandenong, is, is doing that in a way, um, through arranging different supportive uh, homes and different scales, all together in a kind of terrain. Um, project uh, in Perth by Officer Woods called the Civic Suburb starts to challenge the street again. So we, we took that tour through Sunbury. Um, it's dominated by garage doors and by um, the crossovers, maybe a couple of trees, front door. Um, how can we reclaim the, the nature strip? Um, you didn't see any people in that video except for the guys cleaning the motorbike. Um, how can we use that space? Again, there's no backyards anymore. 80% um, site coverage for the suburbs. Um, how can we use the front streets to create this shared infrastructure? Um, again, here in Melbourne, Martin Architects, amazing project, which is a front extension again. We always talk about box on the back, um, you know, backyard extension, but we, we tend not to think about the front yard. Infill small lots. This is just around the corner from where I live in London. Um, uh, Solid Space is a small development agency which um, looks for those sneaky sites, the corner sites, the leftover bits of land above a railway, um, railway line or what have you. Um, buys them up, employs great architects and, and makes these beautiful um, yeah, infill projects. And an example like this might not seem much, but um, when you start to look for them, they're everywhere, and um, a lot of that densification can happen within the cracks of the existing um, structure of the city. Uh, Dan presented this as well already this morning. Um, another project in Perth, which is 
sharing energy at a neighborhood scale through solar power, batteries. Um, I, I understand this to be using blockchain. So again, there's a, um, there's a kind of technological system of trust that's built into this um, through the way the energy is exchanged. Um, and that sort of stuff is a, it's a great um, reinforcement of, of social forms of trust on, as a sort of adjunct to that. So it doesn't replace it, I don't think. Um, City Plot, Amsterdam, Studio Nine Dots. Again, this is trying to um, work out where the top down and the bottom up meet. I mean, we have this amazing uh, individual structure of the suburb, but there's so many benefits to um, creating neighborhood scale systems of um, sharing. So this is a uh, you know, space for free development, but underneath it you have shared energy, shared water, shared waste, um, and shared public spaces, and also um, workspaces and, and working from home all built into the um, urban structure. It's meant to be uh, zero carbon and flood resistant and, and resistant to climate change. Interestingly, their um, research and their examples points at Melbourne. So I mentioned that the world's jealous of our urban structure. Well, um, you know, these guys are in Amsterdam. <laughs> and they're looking at uh, Carlton. So, um, you know, we've got all the right tools here already. But we, we may not even realize it. Um, and again, this is a sort of new build version of a similar thing. Uh, it's by Effect Regen Villages, it's called. This is completely um, off the grid, zero carbon, um, generates all its own energy, collects its own water, even all its own food. Um, so you kind of end up living in a greenhouse, if you like. You've got your garden there, um, plus other shared gardens, um, etc. And it's a closed loop system. So um, waste from the food goes into the biogenerator, which powers the cars, which solar power goes to the... Yeah, you get the idea. And then also to, to patch together this social infrastructure. So I mentioned that 30% um, of us are living alone, um, but there's something about going to a restaurant on your own that's really tragic. <laughs> so. Um, designer uh, Marina van Gore in Amsterdam again, she's created this restaurant which is called Einmal, which is, um, David will correct me, but I think it's effectively a uh, meal for one. Um, thank you. Uh, and uh, th there are no shared tables in this restaurant. So you turn up on your own and you, and you get your own single table. Um, you sort of face away from other customers so that you're not uh, you know, required to speak to them. And um, somehow it, it might allow, encourage people to leave the house and go out for dinner instead of, I don't know, microwaving a um, pasta. <laughs> and then another one with a, with a, with a slightly more um, yeah, serious brief. This is a project which I came across in, in Belfast when I was there giving a talk um, and, yeah, ended up interviewing the shop owner. He said... Uh, yeah, look, this is a, um, what's known as an interface, so that's between the Protestant Catholic neighbourhoods. What happens is, over time, the um, you know, neighbours will fight. That whole block was burned down. The, um, the council then clear it, they fence it, and, they, and it becomes a sort of buffer zone, so that presumably you don't even need to look at someone who you don't like. 
um, as he walked down the street. He w was, he, I mean, he doesn't claim to have any grand vision. He said, look, I, I bought this spot off the council, put my shop here, right on the intersection. Um, I'm here every morning, 7 a.m. till 7 p.m. I've got a big glass front, I keep an eye on the street, clean off the graffiti when I get in. I've got chickens. <laughs> and, you know, maybe people, I don't, I don't tell people what my religion is, but um, they'll come into my shop, they'll see someone else, they might see a guy wearing a hoodie who they might be afraid of, but um, they'll hear me chatting to him and then maybe that slowly over time can change the way we relate to each other. So again, this is, I would say, an architectural project. It's a very simple project driven by an amazing person with a sort of um, modest vision. But uh, again, how can that help us to, how can shops help us to live together? More negotiating of semi-public space. Brilliant um, project by Hermann Hertzberger, uh, I think from the 70s. Um, all, those four photos are taken from the same spot. Uh, the, the, the building was um, installed with these you know, regular um, street tiles that, you, that are everywhere in Holland. Um, the neighbours could then uh, lift them up, plant trees, leave spaces for their cars to park, and over time they sort of um, collectively and independently defined this semi-public space. So instead of having fences, they've um, worked it out over time. Sharing the benefits of sharing. Um, this is a project by Go Hasegawa, the Japanese architect, commissioned by Airbnb for a um, housing expo. After the housing expo, it was moved to this um, village in Japan, which is, again, it's aging and it's, um, it's uh, decline. you know, the, the young people are leaving um, and it's, it's economically uh, not resilient. So it's become a kind of guest house for the city. It's listed on Airbnb, um, and the profits from Airbnb are then shared amongst the community. So, um, and everyone works there to you know, prepare the house, to greet the guests, um, and, and all the rest. So it becomes a sort of um, proxy community um, building, but also uh, an economic generator. Um, this is something I've uh, been thinking about for a little while, an old project of mine when I used to hold the pen. Um, the project for Sydney for a, for a, a couple who were, um, they had an amazing site within a, within a row of terraces, but they were worried about being overstretched. She was starting her own company, didn't want to have huge overheads of, of, um, of, a, of, a, of the paying the rent, effectively, of the, of the mortgage. So um, I proposed turning their house into a sort of community space um, to have a, a rent out a, one of the, um, excuse me, to have a studio that they could rent out, she could have her office there, but also um, to have a sort of public space where, where people could, um, the community could use, and then a shared garden out the back where you could grow things and, and all the rest. They didn't build it. Um, and Dan's already showed a project this morning of um, Atelier Bowwow. This project, which I visited a few years ago, is their um, home and office in Tokyo. The, the section here on the right is a sort of gradient of publicness. So you come in on the left there, um, and then you can either go down into the studio or up into the meeting room. 
and the further up you go, you, you enter into their private house. So at the very top is their bedroom um, and the living room in the middle, which is... A, the other amazing thing about this project is that they bought the land off three different neighbours. So they kind of patched together three different backyards and then built this amazing tower. Um, and then they... So that's a shot of the interior. It's a bit low for me. <laughs> sort of bump your head, but that's okay, it's Tokyo. Um, and despite being on this hugely compressed site, they've still allowed views out from the rooms to sort of bring the city in and to, and to increase the sense of space within the building. So that's sort of the idea. Let's turn Sambri into Seoul. <laughs> or Templestowe into Tokyo, or uh, yeah, whatever you like. But again, you know, I think we can learn from these kinds of cities. It sounds ridiculous, but um, why not? These are cities which have, which have also expanded um, hugely in terms of population, um, and they've worked within the existing structure of um, privately owned blocks to increase the density and to um, increase their self-sufficiency. So how do we get there, though? I'm really interested in practices. This is my book, which is Future Practice, which was mentioned. Um, and it was subtitled Conversations from the Edge of Architecture. Um, when I wrote that, I it was really thinking about people who are not really architects. They're, they might be coming from education or come from, um, you know, yeah, uh, organizing events, or they might be um, digital people. And how can we learn their tactics and import them back to architecture? But the response to it was, was you know, I, I would go on the radio here and I would get a call from someone in far north um, Western Australia saying, oh, I just heard you on the radio. <laughs> they found the num my phone number on, on my website. Um, and I'm an architect up here, I'm working with local communities and, and it really speaks to me, this, this idea of the edge and that we need a different way of thinking about architecture that's defined not by the um, centres. So I think we need to... I think we can learn. Um, I think the suburbs also are part of that edge. Architecture hasn't really taken the suburbs seriously. Maybe we've taken the suburbs ironically. Um, you know, we've, we've kind of analysed them from a visual perspective. I'm thinking of people like Venturi or Fat. Um, but what does it mean to really engage with the um, structures and the, and the economic and sustainable resiliency of these places? The book was written immediately after the crash. Uh, and again, many people were casting around for what the future of the profession might be after all the um, architects were laid off. I, I used two quotes to um, both scare my students and hopefully inspire them to get back on the horse. This is Paul Nakazawa from Harvard saying that the foreseeable future only requires about half of the pre-recession workforce in architecture. Those who remain in the profession need to augment their knowledge. Um, and then Bruce Mao from the interview I did with him. If you think about architecture as a methodology, independent from the outcome, you would see that architecture has a deep culture of synthesis informed by civic values. If you have that capacity, that's the most valuable capacity of any time in history. So um, there's a certain sense of um, crisis and opportunity here, which, which is captured by those two, two people. And it's also a sense of, well, you know, what if you were to reapply your skills and your knowledge in other territories, in other domains? Um, I mentioned 
Lots of small plots, all privately held, perfect for reinvention, very distributed in terms of ownership um, and in terms of, therefore, in terms of power. Um, Andy Fergus and Kath uh, Sunderman, who are here, I think, did a great studio um, with the Melbourne School of Design, went over to Amsterdam, collaborated with the, with the Delft, I think, um, and present, did a great presentation on the sort of development model that happens here in Melbourne. Developers in the room were saying, crying out for, for a structure like that in Holland, where you've got what, what they termed mum and dad developers. So again, because of this um, more fine-grained ownership, you, you don't need a huge amount of capital or, or public um, commitment in order to uh, develop the city. A practice that's modest, um, we've, we lost Paul Faleros last year, tragically. Um, his practice, Health Habitat, was a completely different um, attitude to what being an architect can be. Um, he was working mainly with indigenous communities, and he, I would call it a sort of modest but vast practice. Um, he, in 15 years of Health Habitat, he did repairs on 7,500 houses. Um, so improving countless lives. I mean, I, I, I look at his model, I mean, 7,500, an architect's whole career, you might do 100, um, and he managed that in 15 years. So it's a bit more like the model of the GP. Instead of seeing 10 projects a year, you see 10 people a day. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, perhaps we can fork our practice now. How, how else are we going to deal with 300 people a day arriving in Melbourne? You, you simply can't um, manage it from the top from the top down. Again, um, we're, we're, technology is opening up new opportunities for construction. So this is WikiHouse. Um, it's basically the, the sort of thing which, in every presentation on the future of architecture, you'll see this in there. Um, and it is that radical, I think. So um, it's, a, it's a huge challenge to our professional expertise. Um, here you go. Here's your open source cutting kit. We've engineered it so it will stand up if you do it properly. Um, take it away. No architect involved. I think that's quite exciting. The other um, aspect is where it gets really interesting is that it's not just about um, the physical structure. They're now expanding into um, yeah, rainwater systems, energy systems, waste systems. So it becomes a sort of open source toolkit for, for a, complete, a complete new kind of architecture. Um, this is Black Horse Workshop in London. It's a uh, community workshop facility, building facility. Again, in this new suburb, we're going to need one of these on every corner. Um, project from Rotterdam, Zus, who um, it's quite a long story, but effectively they um, crowdfunded a pedestrian footbridge to connect various uh, neighborhoods within the city. Um, what's really beautiful about it, you can see just on the left there, uh, each of the people who backed the project have their name carved into the bridge itself. So it becomes a kind of one-to-one -one diagram of um, the crowdfunding process. When, when you speak to Christian and Elmer, they'll tell you it's not about the bridge. It's about all the things that it's enabled to be attached to that bridge. Um, so it's infrastructure in the, in the truest sense. In London, the uh, mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, I think is gently... Um, repurposing his office and the, and the Greater London Authority, the planning office, to become more of a platform rather than a, 
um, uh, sort of top-down operation. So one of their uh, new initiatives is, is called Crowdfund London. Effectively, if you can get a group together in your local neighbourhood, present a project, ha uh, gather local support, you can pitch it to this program and the, um, the mayor's office will match the money that you've raised um, and, and clear the way for, for permissions as well. So that's a big difference, I think, for how um, public services are, are run. You're, you're becoming more of a platform rather than, a, um, rather than dictating what should happen. Uh, Finn Williams, who's also working within the GLA, is um, interested in... I mean, it was, it was David this morning who mentioned bringing the um, government into the office because the expertise simply isn't in the government anymore. Um, so he set up, an, and that's a graph of, uh, excuse me, that's a graph of the, the red line is the number of architects employed by the state in London. So it's, and it's less than, it's more like 1% now. So that expertise has been completely hollowed out. Um, and he's just launched a week ago a, a project called Public Practice, which is, um, really a, res a sort of, um, what do you call it, placement program for architects to go into um, public sector to understand that, learn that, and, and hopefully feed talent into the public sector which, where, where it doesn't exist. Frank Duffy, again, shearing layers, practice of continual reinvention. Dan already explained it this morning. This is my neighbour, John Worthington, who lives next door in, in an apartment building. He's the W in DEGW, so we started the business with Frank. Um, and he talks, he's, we've been talking a lot about the model of his practice of DEGW, which was really a workplace consultancy. But um, they all trained as architects. And this diagram I thought was fascinating. So it's quite hard to read, but... Um, and I don't know if my pointer will work, but effectively, that process that you can see is the whole building process from researching the idea of the project right through to post-occupancy evaluation and maintenance of the building itself. The grey area in the middle is the area that architecture is traditionally concerned with. That's from when the brief arrives on your desk um, and when you've handed over the keys. And he's saying the, the high value and the um, high importance aspects are outside of that territory and that we need to therefore expand our practice to include things like management, maintenance and redevelopment. He says the, the project isn't the, isn't the building, it's the client um, and you need to make that relationship and continue that over decades rather than months. Okay, oh, almost there. Final example, um, Robin Boyd, who is a certain um, hero of mine. Um, for those who don't know, um, and everyone will except for perhaps uh, Marissa and <laughs> Minsuk, uh, he was an um, architect, educator, um, a, a polemicist, uh, all, you name it, um, here in Melbourne, really practicing in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and 70s, um, he wrote this um, screed against the suburbs and against featurism and the, and the decorative Australiana that people would cover their houses with. For him, it wasn't good taste. Modernism was the way. And so to, to bring that about, he set up with the Age newspaper 
um, the small home service. So every week they would publish a new house design um, and you could buy the plans from the newspaper. He had a, a room of draftspeople. And um, that's how the suburbs were built in the 70s. People would buy the plans, very cheap, um, give them to a builder and, and there you go. Modern, clean, beautiful living. Um, and as, it's, as Searle tells us, 50,000 homes were built through this. So again, that's a, that's a project of scale. So I think what we need is the small homes adaptation service. Again, we can work with the, with the media, we can get a studio together, we can then uh, look at the legacy of small homes, revisit those suburbs, the outer suburbs, um, and apply some of these ideas on, on, in that con context. That's my pitch. So if anyone wants to talk about that, I'll be outside. <laughs>